If you guys can hear me out in the hallway, I invite you to come in. We're going to begin this morning. Um, I'm going to pray, and as you can tell, this is not Stephen Parkin or Carrie Wilson or Scott Huffman. This is a new face, and I'll explain why in just a moment. So let's pray. We'll jump in. Heavenly Father, thank you for another Sunday, another day where we can gather uh, with your children, a day we can gather around your word, a day we can worship you and rejoice in the eternal realities of what Christ has accomplished, the eternal realities of who you are and your steadfast love for us. I ask that this morning's conversation uh, would be profitable in the sense that it would strengthen uh, the faith of everyone present. I pray that uh, the things shared would be encouraging and that you would receive the glory as your church is edified. So we pray your blessing on our time of fellowship this morning. Amen. Amen. Well, many of you know that um, we're going to be having my brother Dave Hintz here preach this morning uh, in, our, in our worship service. And since he was going to be here anyway, uh, I thought, man, we do these panel discussions so, sort of every three or four weeks on average, sometimes longer. But I'd love to, to interview Dave and give you guys a chance to get to know him a little bit. And we've been studying um, systematic theology. We've been studying doctrine. And so in addition to maybe asking him about his testimony, I'd like to ask him, how does theology shape his life as a Christian, as a husband, as a father, as a pastor? Uh, because as we've talked about often throughout this class, we don't want doctrine to simply be uh, something that educates you. We want this to be something practical. We want it to shape how we live. We don't ever want to lose sight of, of the, the purpose of studying doctrine, which is to know God, to worship him, to become more and more like his son, Jesus Christ. So I'm going to give Dave just a few minutes to, to talk here, and I'll introduce him again so some of you guys will get a little bit of a repeat at the beginning of the sermon. Um, but many of you guys have gotten to know Julia Hintz just a little bit. If you're in our college and, and young adult study, Julia's been part of that. She's going to KU. Um, and one of the reasons she's at KU is because that's where you went to college. Yes. So share with us a little bit about your experience at KU and how God used that in your conversion. Yeah, I will probably bring this up a little bit in my sermon, but I came... Um, to KU as a, as a non-Christian. I was exposed to it. My sister uh, became a born-again Christian uh, her, I guess, my, my junior year of high school. And I kind of grew up in the day and age of PTL. I remember Praise the Lord Ministries, Jim and Tamifa Baker. They're kind of making a comeback now. People are realizing what a novelty they were. But we kind of had a cynical view towards Christianity. My dad would tell me, you know, it's okay. A little bit of Jesus is okay. Just don't become a Jesus freak. You know, if you join the church, they'll just want your money. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like a little bit's good, but just not too much. And so my sister, uh, she was uh, someone who I guess would be your teenage parent nightmare, right? Just had all these issues that were just coming to a head. My parents had no idea what to do with her. She went to a camp and came back a born-again Christian, right? She went from listening to Motley Crue to Amy Grant, and that was an improvement in our house. But, uh, but I think that kind of piqued my curiosity and my interest as to, okay, so I, I thought I was a Christian by default because I wasn't a Muslim and I wasn't Jewish. And I wasn't an atheist, so I guess I was a Christian. And so my sister really encouraged me to get... Um, involved in some sort of campus ministry and so I was living in Ellsworth Hall and I heard that there's a group giving out coupons for free small pyramid pizza and free was my favorite word and so it's kind of like the effectual call I didn't really have a chance right I was just kind of drawn to that survey I filled it out and then a guy contacted me later on and he brought me into um, I guess the group at the time was Campus Crusade for Christ and and it was really interesting to spend time with them. Um, 
they were, um, to kind of go more into like 90s pop culture, it was like I was in a group of Ned Flanders, right? I, I just, they were talking about Jesus this, Jesus that, and there was this whole, you know, listening to DC talk and being all excited because it was actually good, and they're explaining that to me, and I'm like, okay, well, I'm, I mean, I was just an outsider, you know, just kind of looking in, but what really struck me about this group is they loved and embraced anybody who came, and they were excited to um, have anybody join them. And I went to this uh, fall retreat down in the Ozarks, and there was a girl on my dorm floor who uh, went with me, and she was, uh, uh, she would be in that category, I'll just say like a social leper. You know, like everyone, like when she walked into the room, everyone just kind of backed off because she was one of those people who would do anything she could to draw attention to herself. She would just be obnoxious, lacked social skills, and I saw how our dorm floor treated her, and they would just humiliate her, make fun of her. She was always like, oh, man, she's here. Well, she came to this retreat, and, and I remember seeing how the Christians treated her. Like, there, she was never at a table by herself. People were always talking to her. Um, you know, there would be a country dance the first night, because I guess that was okay. You could dance to country music, just not Motley Crue or anything like that, or Nirvana mm-hmm. back in that time. And um, guys would just ask her to dance. And, and then we had a, a karaoke machine the next night, and she got up to sing. And she was just blowing it. I mean, it was just one of those deeply awkward, oh, my goodness, this is going to be painful. And then a guy just kind of got up and just said, you know, gave that you-know-what-to-do, and the whole group just sang the song so that she wouldn't be humiliated. Hmm. And I think when I saw that, I was like, Wow. You know, I never saw people treat somebody like that that way. And so that really kind of piqued my interest. You know, beyond the dorkiness and the Jesus this, Jesus that, and the quiet time code, I was really kind of drawn to, um, you know, just this group of people. And so we went to a man-makers retreat, and I didn't know what this was going to be about, but then they talked about, you know, pornography and all this other stuff. And I'm just like, man, how do, how do they know? And I think that was a period of time where, you know, that was a dark area of, of sin in my life that needed to be turned from. And I think that was when I finally understood repentance and the idea of, of you know, to follow Jesus, you truly make him Lord of your life. Mm-hmm. And because before that, there was always the, you know, these people are getting something that I'm not getting. I'm not quite sure why they like going. I mean, I like going to church. You know, I tolerate the sermon and stuff like that. That's what my friends did. But it was like the Lord was speaking to them, you know. And so there was just something that was just kind of, I wasn't quite making the connection until I truly surrendered. And then after that point in my life, it's like the Bible came alive to me. You know, I wanted to read the Bible. I wanted to read the scripture. That kind of started me on a journey of really fighting sin and taking that on. And so, yeah, that's how um, I became a Christian. And then got involved in a church and eventually sensed the call to ministry. I'm not sure if that's more than you asked for, but... No, that's good. Um, What was your involvement with your church like? Not as good as it should have been. Um, I mean, I came to Christ uh, through the ministry of Campus Crusade, and I thank God for that ministry. And so most of my involvement was leading the being the leadership team and being a part of a small group. And I was going to church, and I did become a member. I went to Grace Evangelical Presbyterian Church back when they met in an elementary school. And then eventually, I think they moved into a building towards the end. So some of you may have met this young man years ago. (laughs) I I had a lot more hair back then. Okay. 
Yeah, so it, it was, church was something I went to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think I really had uh, a robust understanding of the church until later. But I think, you know, that was kind of the day and age of parachurch ministries where they were very popular during the time. And, um, yeah, and I think they did a lot of, a lot of good things. Um, but just that, uh, you know, the reformed resurgence and stuff was just starting to happen when I was in college. And I think with that, there was a return to a high view of the church. But, I mean, the, the biggest spokesman when I was in, um, for Christianity was James Dobson or Pat Robertson. You know, so it was always like these Chuck Colson. It was all these parachurch leaders and so having, like, a robust church presence, it just wasn't part of the, the scene in the 80s and 90s. And, you know, you older baby members, right? I mean, that was just kind of the, yeah. kind of it. I, d- I didn't really know anything different until I was, I think, introduced to the ministry of John MacArthur. And that influenced you a little bit? Quite a bit, quite a bit. So talk about maybe a little bit about your call to ministry, your training, some of your ministry experience. Sure. Um, yeah, I, I was deeply involved in Campus Crusade. And, and they it basically, if you're a Christian and you're alive and you do some ministry, you're called to ministry unless you can prove otherwise. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there was, I, I wouldn't go that way anymore. I think it's, um, yeah, there, there's more to it than that. But I loved sharing my faith. Um, I loved evangelism. I loved discipleship. Um, but I, I went to college with the intent of, of becoming a lawyer on the other side. And so I kind of grew up in white-collar America. That's what I thought the Lord had for me. And, um, and I really kind of wrestled with it because there was this pressure on me from that ministry to consider full-time ministry as an option, specifically staff with Campus Crusade. And I was doing a read through the Bible in a year plan, and I was reading the book of Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes was just systematically shooting down the American dream for me. Mm-hmm. You know, what's the point of money and all this other stuff? I mean, what it all comes down to is the fear of the Lord. Mm-hmm. And I went to a, a Campus Crusade Christmas conference, and, you know, this guy basically talked about his own call. Like, what was you, what's really important? What do you really live for? And... I think just the idea of, of eternity and, you know, lost souls are perishing. Um, yeah, you can find the cure for cancer, but people are going to die of something else. But ultimately, you know, it's the salvation of souls. And so that really kind of triggered a fundamental commitment to that. And so I ended up um, graduating a year early from college, and I went to Hungary for one year. And I made a deal with my dad where, okay, I graduated a year early, so I'm just going to do this. And my my parents were pretty resistant to it. Now, my parents have come to faith since then, but before that, um, there was just a lot of, like, you're wasting your life. You know, there was just a lot of, um, you know, you're going to missionary. You know, it's just a boondoggle, right? You're just going over there to, to see Europe. But I think when I went over there, I, um, I really enjoyed it. I mean, I really enjoyed sharing my faith you know, the, the ministry, and, and as I was there, I began to see a lot of theological deficiencies uh, in myself. Uh, we had a, a situation in Hungary where the church we went to um, had a group of students 
that began to have visions from the Lord to tell them to spray paint Bible verses all over Hungary. So the Spirit of God was commanding these students to commit crimes, namely graffiti, in Jesus' name. And it just led to this whole, like, explosion. But, you know, how do you answer that? I mean, how do you know the Lord doesn't speak to you in dreams anymore? How do you know that you don't do that? So that kind of, you know, and, and in the process, my parents moved to uh, Boise, Idaho, where I got involved um, in Grace Bible Church. And a man by the name of Jack Hughes, who went to the Master's Seminary, told me about John MacArthur in that seminary, and and I kind of came, um, you know, I was committed to the sovereignty of God and salvation. I had dispensational leanings, and so master seemed like the perfect fit. So I actually signed up for seminary sight unseen. First time I stepped on the master's campus was to buy books, mm-hmm. and I remember driving through the Nevada desert, which is a place that would look the same before and after a nuclear strike, by the way. And we're dri- I'm driving south, and I see Boundary Peak, which is this beautiful mountain that when you see it, you know you're going to cross into California. And that was my Rubicon, right? I, I just started freaking out a little bit, like, what am I doing, right? Let not many of you become teachers, for you'll incur straight judgment. And so all these verses were coming, and I'm like, huh, oh, well, I signed up. So I just kind of went on. And so, yeah, that's how I, you know, I got trained and then um, ended up being a, an associate pastor with a college in evangelism at, at Calvary Bible Church in Burbank. And then about 14 years ago or so, I moved to Emporia, Kansas. So, God's country. Yes. Welcome to Kansas. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so, you saw a need for theological training in Hungary. You went uh-huh. and got some theological training. Yep. Now you're in the business of helping yep. equip people theologically. So. We've been talking, as I mentioned earlier, about um, doctrine, systematic theology in this class for a number yeah. of months. Uh-huh. So talk a little bit about the, the, how that shaped you as a person in your own walk with Christ. Yeah. As you're studying scripture and you're seeing how things fit together, you're getting a bigger view of God, a more comprehensive yeah. understanding of his word. What, what role has, has that learning and that discovery yeah. played in your own faith? Yeah, I was thinking, I knew this question was going to be asked. So I was thinking, what really got me into theology? And when I became a a Christian, it was like the only natural thing you do is you tell other people about the gospel, right? It's the greatest news. And I was surprised that not everyone felt as excited about it as I did. And I remember, you know, I'd shared the four spiritual laws. I remember seeing that tract and thought, this is like the greatest thing. It just summarizes the gospel right there. And I just would just talk to people. And I talked to a girl on my dorm floor who was a Catholic. And she took me to... 1 Peter chapter 3, about the spirits who are now in prison, and talked about purgatory. I'm like, what? Purgatory? You mean there's some place between here and heaven where you get your sins purged? That just doesn't seem right. And so I, I opened up the yellow pages, and I started calling different pastors and saying, so what do you know about purgatory? And I found a guy, and he kind of walked through what purgatory, you know, what they believe, how it fits into that system of salvation, and and the concept of shield. So he kind of walked it through. I'm like, oh, okay, that makes sense. And so as I would share my faith, I would get stumped. I'd talk to a Jehovah Witness. You mean Jesus? And wait, what? What are you talking about? So I'd get on the phone again, and I would talk to my discipler. And, and eventually I wore my discipler out, and he bought me a, um, my first theology book, Know What You Believe by Paul Little. You guys ever read that book? It's just a great, accessible, 150-page 
little primer on theology. And I thought, okay, Trinity. Oh, here are the verses that prove it. So that's the first thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, yeah, so a lot, of, a lot of the theology was kind of, I saw the need right away. Mm-hmm. Um, there was another time uh, when I went to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Anybody been there? The Redneck Riviera? Yeah, it was uh, something special for, uh, for a summer project. And, and what we would do is we would go to the beach or other places, and we would just systematically share our faith. And I thought, well, it's in the Bible Belt. Like, everyone's practically a Christian already. We'll see how it goes. And, um, you know, that was a place where all of a sudden the category of lordship salvation, like what does it mean to really be a Christian when I'm around these false Christians, led to a lot of exploration in that way. And so a lot of John MacArthur's teaching on that was very helpful. And then I remember there was one night where um, I was on the debate team in high school, so there was this belief that if I can just get the argument right, I can win people through the Lord. And when I'd go out witnessing, I mean, that was a lot of pressure on me. And I remember one night just being super discouraged because everybody was shooting me down. I'm like, what am I doing wrong? And that's when I talked to this guy about it, and he kind of explained to me um, the sovereignty of God and salvation. And I got a hold of A.W. Pink's book, The Sovereignty of God, and it just kind of opened up everything. Ah, you know, like, I see why. Because I would deal with questions like, why did... Why am I a Christian and not somebody else? Mm-hmm. Um, what did I do to believe this versus somebody else who didn't? Why do I have an opportunity? And, and so the sovereignty of God was just very clarifying uh, for me. And so it was one of those things where I don't necessarily think I just studied because theology for theology's sake, but as I was in the context of ministry, mm-hmm. um, I was looking for answers, and the Lord faithfully provided them for me. And so going overseas to Hungary and charismatic issues became an issue. And so there's, so that's kind of why, um, you know, theology made me more effective uh, as far as evangelism and teaching and preaching. And then I also think um, when I went to seminary, um, I was exposed to biblical counseling. And I remember I had this great, um, uh, I went to the seminar before I went to Hungary about how Christ plus nothing is more than enough and that you look at all the needs that you have and Christ meets your greatest needs of, of significance and security. I'm like, oh man, this is just gold. And I would use that as a devotional all the time. And I remember being in my seminary class and Stuart Scott said, where in the Bible does it say significance and security are your greatest needs? And I thought, well, it's, it's, um, it's in... Uh, it's not in there. And that was mind-blowing for me. And so that kind of transitioned the Bible from being a theological answer book for me, do you know what I'm saying, mm-hmm. to something that really counsels me and shapes me and sanctifies me. And so a lot of this I just kind of learned, because I didn't come from a Christian background, just as I kind of went along these issues just... Well, I think okay. there can be maybe a, a thought for some people that studying doctrine, studying theology, like, yeah, well, Dave, you should do that because you're yeah. supposed to preach and be a pastor. Yeah. But some of the things you're talking about, personal evangelism, yeah. understanding who you are before God and, and what the real yeah. um, mm-hmm. uh, issues are in your heart and what the real answers are yeah. from a biblical perspective, that, that, those are things that every Christian needs. 
Yeah. Um, studying theology, being biblically equipped to, to see the doctrinal emphasis of Scripture, that's not just for pastors. I think this is something that, and yeah. that's why we're dragging you guys through this for a number of months very slowly, yeah. is we think this is good for all Christians, yeah. and we think this will impact your personal life, and, and it's necessary. Um, and and yeah. all of us are called to participate in the ministry to some degree, whether it's sharing the gospel with a neighbor yeah. or with your cousin, or whether it's teaching yeah. in, in the gathered church. Yeah, or I think you struggle with anxiety. I mean, who doesn't struggle with anxiety, right? There's the sovereignty of God is the perfect antidote towards anxiety. Or you, you look at the goodness of God mm-hmm. uh, when people suffer, or, or even the righteousness of God when you're dealing with anger, right? So there is a sense where your understanding of those categories is deeply sanctifying as far as living a righteous life. And so, yeah, it's more than just cult evangelism, although there's a lot to that and there's a function for it. But I think all of Paul's writings, there was a ministry occasion that led him to disclose those doctrines. It wasn't like, what do you think about this? You know, what do you think about the order of the Greece, Timothy? And they just talked about that for that sake. I mean, there was a purpose behind it. And so I was very surprised at just how practical um, theology is and how it did make me a better evangelist, discipler, teacher, counselor, all those categories was, and husband. Yeah. Husband and father. Thank you, sweetie. So let's transition to that then. So as I'm looking around the room, I see a number of men who are husbands and fathers. I see a number of young men who, um, Lord willing, one day will be husbands, fathers. I see a number of young women who are looking for the right kind of husband and father. So what place does theology have just um, in, in the in the sphere of, of the home and the family, yeah. parenting. And this is, you know, something that both, you know, father and mother are both involved in. Like, why should, why should homes prioritize doctrine? Yeah, I think for uh, a lot of men who, let's just be real. I mean, you and I are not touchy-feely guys. I don't think we've ever hugged. Have we ever hugged? Probably I don't, not. No, I don't think you and I have. I maybe don't think once. we have. Maybe yeah, once. Maybe once. <laughs> we did a trust fall together, I think. But... Uh, there is something about, I've seen young men when they turn their attention towards theology and start putting pieces together that's just really enriching as they kind of discover just truth and, and what it means and I think elevates their view of God. And I think that's really the end of all theology is really the fear of the Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, the higher you, your view of God, the more it's clear that he is in charge. And so... Um, when you look at a at a husband who is abusive, you know, what is his issue? He doesn't fear the Lord. Mm-hmm. You know, a father who is abusive doesn't fear the Lord. And so the more a man truly fears the Lord, the greater the stability in the home because he's, it's very clear that, you know, if he asks his wife to submit to him, it's, you know, he's accountable to the Lord and he realizes that and he trembles. You know, as he disciplines the kid, he doesn't exasperate them because he knows he will give an account for that. And so I think the, the fear of the Lord um, is what brings safety, you know, to a home, prevents abuse, and is what is probably the most important thing a father can impart to his kids. So the higher your view of God, right, the more you study him and his attributes, the easier it is to, to fear him. Yeah. That's good. Um... Just maybe shifting to the, the church format, uh-huh. um, you came into an existing church yep. 14, 15 years ago. Uh-huh. 
um, what do you think the place of the congregation's grasp on theology yeah. has in terms of being a healthy church? I mean, is it enough for the yeah. pastors to just get it right and everybody else can kind of put it in neutral and tag along behind? Yeah, I think, I mean, as long as the pastor gets it right, I mean, he does all the ministry, right? That's what you pay him for. <laughs> That's sarcasm. Oh, sorry. That's sarcasm, just in case you didn't know. <laughs> I, I was led a different direction. Yeah, our church was interesting. We were, at one point in time, Flint Hills Christian Church. And, if you, and I didn't really know what that meant. I thought, oh, it's in the Flint Hills and has Christians in it and it's a church. Sounds good. But I didn't know that it was intimately uh, connected to what's called the Restoration Movement. You guys ever heard of the Restoration Movement? It was uh, it's a Campbell Stone movement out of Kentucky. It was during the, uh, I think, the Second Great Awakening in maybe the 1820s, 1830s. And and it was kind of a return to primitive Christianity, right? No book but the Bible, no creed but Christ. And so, you know, from that group, you had the Disciples of Christ, the Church of Christ, the Christian Church. And um, one of the tenets was biblical baptism, that you, you essentially had to be baptized to be saved. And so our church, um, not everybody believed it, and not all Christian churches believed that. But... Our senior pastor at one point in time, my predecessor, he believed that. And there was a group of people that believed that. And they're okay with the elders disagreeing and everything as long as they have the senior pastor. Well, the senior pastor was a big fan of John MacArthur. And he would always go out to the Shepherds Conference. And he, um, you know, after about eight years, he finally said, this is heresy. And not only did he reject um, baptismal regeneration, he became a hardcore five-point Calvinist. And so when he came back, he was still in his cage stage. And uh, do you guys know what about the cage stage? You have a young, earnest man who becomes, he sees Calvinism in everything. Like, the Lord is my shepherd? Well, he's only your shepherd if he calls you. You know, it's like they all go that way. And so that led to um, a three-way church split where the Restoration people started their own church, the people who did not like Calvinism started their, you know, kind of went to some of the other churches, and, and so the church really shrunk. And um, the doctrinal fight was part of the reason why. And so it was kind of, a, kind of a touchy situation, right? Calvinism was still a, a, a dirty word for a lot of people. Um, you didn't bring up John MacArthur because... You know, he was quoted so often by these proponents. So, um, you know, the first thing I had to do there was just establish myself as a Bible guy. So I taught through Philippians, then I taught through Colossians. Mm -hmm. And then um, I taught through Exodus, right? I hear somebody else is teaching through Exodus. Can I get your notes? Because I still have a few more. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. It, so I taught through Exodus. And, and, and this is what I observed. When people struggle with predestination, the sovereignty of God and salvation. They don't like it because it changes their view of God, mm -hmm. right? It changes their view of God. And so I thought, well, let's change their view of God first and then introduce that doctrine. Mm -hmm. And so my, my favorite line in the book of Exodus, which I think is just awesome, is when Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? And Moses says, well, I'll show you. Well, he didn't really say I'll show you, but you know, I just kind of imagine him like yes. going all cage fighter on him. You know, just, I'm going to show you. And that was something that just kind of 
just showing them the acts of God, that this is God. And if you got a problem with him, and you got a problem with this, you got real problems. You know, and so that was something that just kind of elevated people's view of God. So we never said predestination. We never said Calvinism. We always camped out on a high view of God, right? The fear of the Lord. And, and, and so I think, you know, when you study theology and everything, the point is developing a fear of the Lord, right? And that is the sanctifying element of studying theology. And so as we kind of move that direction it was a lot easier to introduce those concepts where I say, hey, if you're an Arminian or whatever, all I care about is that you have a high view of God and you do what the scriptures say. And when you get people to a point where I just want to know what the scriptures say and whatever it says, I'll be fine with, it's, you know, they're good there. And eventually, like I think after 10 years of ministry there, I finally uh, went through Ephesians and chapter one and I taught on the sovereignty of God and salvation and you know, there was the explosion in our church was equivalent to a wet firecracker, right? People were like, yeah, mm-hmm. no, that sounds right. <laughs> Good. All right. So the soil was prepared. The soil was prepared, yeah. yeah. So we've been teaching just recently. We finished going through the doctrines of grace yep. week by week. Uh-huh. Stephen did a wonderful job carrying uh-huh. the, the bulk of that load. Um, and I know for some people, some of that's new. Yep. And they do value scripture. That's why yeah. they're here. They do have a high view of God. Yeah. But some of these terms, even thinking through how human will and divine sovereignty yep. relate to each other and what the scripture means when it uses words like foreknowledge and predestination mm-hmm. and such mm-hmm. things. Um, we're, we're not putting a full court press on people, but we yeah. are trying to teach persuasively. Yeah. What counsel would you give to someone who is maybe wrestling through that, still feeling the tension? Uh, what just sort of pastoral counsel would you offer? Yeah, I would say it's a journey. I mean, it's something that uh, is not an issue of heaven and hell. It's not an issue of salvation. It's just, you just want to make sure you're viewing God the right way. And I'd even say that predestination and foreknowledge, um, the purpose of it is pastoral. You know, that nothing can take away your salvation. I mean, you're not going to undo the work of God. And that is, um, that's fine. I'd even say, you know what, if you're struggling with this, you probably believe more of it than you know. Like, do you ever pray for somebody's salvation? What exactly are you praying for when you pray for somebody's salvation? I mean, we want God to move their hearts and move their their will. And so, um, yeah, and I would also say, too, um, you know, be biblical in your approach. You know, don't, I, I think, the careful study of the word, putting all the pieces together does take some time. I would say don't, don't shortcut for a system. Don't shortcut for a system. Um, I think when you, lose, when you do that, you lose what I call the hermeneutical higher ground. And there are some tensions that are difficult to resolve. Um, but, you know, the secret things belong to the Lord. But ultimately, um, I find great comfort in it. And, and I'd even say, um, you know, when talking about it, if you're a cage stage Calvinist, John Newton talked about Calvinism is kind of like sugar. And I, I don't like the term Calvinist, but I'm using theological shorthand. Nobody except and, for maybe... And John Newton being the author of Amazing uh, Grace. Amazing Grace, yeah. So. He said nobody except for some three-year-olds like straight sugar. You just kind of mix it in with everything. Right, So I think talking about the benefits of a high view of God, and I think um, the glory of God, the high view of God, that is the emphasis, not predestination. 
predestination fits into the larger narrative of high view of God and the lordship of Jesus, but that's not the point. And I think if you make the point all about predestination, it's... Yeah, it's not predestination for predestination's sake. Yeah. Or for the sake of logical precision. It's to see God as he really is. Yeah, the fear of the Lord. Yeah, Mm -hmm. fear of the Lord. High view of God. And and that's immensely helpful and transformational. Good. Well, one last open-ended question. Mm -hmm. As a father of a college student, um, maybe speak to those who are not college students in the room. How is it that we can have an effective ministry to college students as a church? Not, yeah. not necessarily as a specific program, but how as a church body can we faithfully steward the opportunity we have to minister to students? You were once a student in Lawrence, mm-hmm. Kansas. Yep. Now your daughter Julia is a student in Lawrence, yeah. Kansas. So uh-huh. what, what's your hopes as a pastor at another church when maybe some kids from Emporia would come up to Lawrence? Yeah, I think the most impactful thing is to have them in your home. I mean, they are in a position where the adults in their life who are the experts are the professors. And uh, Emporia is a college town, not on the caliber of Lawrence, but we have some professors who live across the street. In fact, we have one house that had an um, accounting professor, and now it has an English professor. And what was really interesting about the accounting professor is he did all these weird yoga, jujitsu stretching exercises, like... He would get into the front yard, and I always thought he was flying a kite. But he wasn't flying a kite. That was just a stretching. Mm-hmm. You know? And so when you see that expert do that, you're like, hmm, don't go to him for life advice. <laughs> don't go to him for life advice. You know? And my professor friend told me that the longer you're in you know, the university, the weirder you get. You know? So there's just kind of a, there's an artificial reality, and I think when... When the kids get into a home and they see normalcy and a normal life and wisdom that's there, mm-hmm. it, I think that does more than anything, insulates them from the attraction of these professors and the ideology that they're giving. Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, what you guys are doing is, is fantastic and you know, we've been super encouraged. And I, I think I told Michael uh, earlier today, the reason why Julia is at KU is because of this church. So we kind of deliberated, do we go you know, campus ministry? But campus ministries come and go. They're only as strong as the leaders. But really, the, if you can learn to be a part of a church when you're in high school and really embrace the church, or I guess in college and high school, but if you're really part of the church, that will stick as you graduate. But when the campus ministry is done, the campus ministry is just done. What do you do after that? Yeah, and that's why there's all this pressure to go on staff with the campus ministry as opposed to having a conception for how you can walk with the Lord and minister faithfully as part of a church. And that's why I think I felt all that pressure to be part of the campus ministry. I didn't know that you can have a super effective, God-glorifying impact on this world through the church. But yeah, having people into your home, which you have done um, you know, with my daughter, which is, is great. My daughter actually asked if I put you up to it. I said, no, but I would have. <laughs> Well, I know for me that was something that I really appreciated as a college student was being able to be in people's homes and get out of this artificial, very unique niche environment. And I was at a Christian university, Um, but it's still artificial. It's still not the real world, and it's still quirky. And just to be in people's homes um, was one of my favorite memories. So so if you haven't got a chance to know some of these students and go out to lunch with them or have them over to your house, um, 
do that. And, and I'll also say this. Um, one of the reasons this church exists is because of the faithful prayers of many people. And Dave, and probably his wife I would anticipate as well, are part of that. Over the years, he's always pressured me. He said, you guys better make it. You better <laughs> succeed in planting this church. Yeah. I'm not sending my daughter to K-State, right? Right, <laughs> because... She needs to be a Jayhawk, but I need a good church there, so yeah. I hope you guys can, can survive. Yeah. And so he's, for the yeah. last six or seven years, been, I've been saying, championing I'm praying it. for you guys, and, yeah. and you, you better not flake out. So. Yeah, I, and honestly, this has lived up to the hype. You know, I, Beck and I put a lot of pressure on it, on you, I know that, but it's been super beneficial for Julia. And, you know, Lord willing, yeah, we'll send more kids here. But you know what? It's, yeah, so, and I have, and, like, justification to catch a basketball game or... Yeah, exactly. And Julie, I'm hoping we can, talk in about, we can talk about you here so he gets it all out of his system. So that yeah. in the sermon, you know, in the main service, he won't have to do too much. Yeah, I do have some, some baby pictures. <laughs> She's like smiling but crying at the same time. So, well, th- thank you for coming early today, and we're looking yeah. forward to having you preach. Uh, we have a few minutes to fellowship before uh, we get, regather for worship okay. at 1030. If you want to get a chance to meet Dave and say hello. Uh, feel free to come do that, and we'll be back here at 10.30. 10.30, so. all right.